There is some sexual content in this episode, and it may not be appropriate for young listeners. Thank you. Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Well, today we learn about Mata Hari. She was a spy. At least that's what much of history tells us. But this is her story. Mata Hari has been discussed by many, and at first we weren't going to cover her, but she's really too well known as a spy not to. The thing to remember is that Mata Hari is kind of a symbol. Various narratives about her life have served many an agenda, but she was a person, and we want to tell you about the human behind the myth. The woman known as Mata Hari was born Margaretha Zell in 1876, and despite rumors of an Indian heritage, she was actually from Holland. Her father, Adam Zell, was a hat merchant, and her mother, Ancha, struggled with tuberculosis most of Margaretha's childhood. Margarita was the only girl and had three brothers. She was better known as Gretha, and she stood out amongst her classmates. She was flamboyant, bold, and darker than the usual fair-headed Dutch children. She was also her father's favorite, and he showered his only daughter with attention and extravagant gifts. That is, until he became bankrupt. Let's back up just a bit, though. Adam Zell was known about town as a dramatic storyteller. In an attempt to mock him, those who knew him dubbed him the Baron because he was always making up stories about his lineage. A neighbor stated that he was a nasty, unmanageable man. That's never anything you want to hear about yourself. But my guess is if you put that on a Tinder profile, you would get a lot of hits. That's true. I think people like a challenge. That makes sense. Well, and I think they appreciate honesty. They just know what they're walking to up front. I'm just a nasty, unmanageable man. (laughs) I'm, you know, I I leave messes around the house, whatever. And people are like, well, I can deal with that. I know what to expect anyway. Yeah. They just see it as a fixer upper, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, either way, Adam got rich from oil speculation and in 1883 moved his family into the loudest, most ostentatious house in town. The home was complete with a little tower and a bright red door. He wanted his golden child, Gretha, to live out his dreams of grandeur, and he raised her with a lot of extravagance. She had a governess, a goat cart, and I do mean like a goat, not a go-kart. Apparently, goat carts were a symbol of, like a status symbol? Uh, It's like they were little baby chariots, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I wonder if they were fainting goats. I love fainting goats. Anyway, she also had dancing lessons and private tutoring in French, German, and English. But suddenly, Adam's investments turned and he lost everything. Now, this is when he abandoned his family. And he did this to take up with a woman who could help him support the lifestyle he was accustomed to. There's no doubt that this played a huge role in young Gretha's life. So the sickly Ancha was forced to move herself and the kids into a small flat, and she struggled to keep the family afloat. A couple of years later, when Gretha was almost 15, her mother passed away. 
all the children were split up and sent off to live with relatives that they hardly knew. Greta ended up with her godfather, who was an older bachelor, unfamiliar with children, and he lived in The Hague. Okay, before I keep going, I may be really stupid here, but I've always been a little bit confused. I kind of hate to admit this, but The Hague is a place, right? It's not a building? (laughs) Right. It is a city. It's not a building. And it oddly refers to itself in the third person because of the origins of its name. It originated from the Gravenhag, which means the Count's Hedge, and Uh refers to the fact that Dutch noblemen used the land for hunting. Then that evolved into Den Haag, or the Hague. Okay, well, now I know. And so does anyone else who was curious, but they didn't want to admit it. Did that for you? You're welcome. Well, anyway... Greta was there, and she was attending a school to educate girls who wanted to be teachers. Greta supposedly loved children, and she planned to be a primary teacher. But when she was 16, the young woman was expelled from the school under the accusation of an affair with the headmaster. Although legend paints her as a seductress, the fact is that this was a teenager who was hurting and abandoned, and she was taken advantage of by someone older than her that was in authority over her. So, at 18, shamed by her community, Greta was looking for an escape. In The Hague, there were many colonial officers who had served in the Dutch East Indies, which is modern-day Indonesia. Greta saw these officers, and they appeared to have it together. Their families usually had servants, and they were treated respectfully. It kind of reminded the young woman of the life that she had had as a rich man's adored daughter. So when she saw a Lonely Hearts ad in the paper, seeking a lovely girl with a sweet character and intent to marry, she immediately wrote back, enclosing a picture, and engaged in passionate correspondence with Rudolf MacLeod. Rudolf was a Dutch officer of Scottish heritage. He was 20 years Greta's senior. The funny thing is that MacLeod himself never actually took out the ad. Some of his military buddies did, and they did it in an effort to tease him. Nonetheless, Rudolph and Greta embarked on a whirlwind courtship that found them married a mere three months later. Unfortunately, Rudolph MacLeod was not the man Greta had been hoping for. He was an unrepented womanizer and a heavy drinker. He cheated on Greta almost immediately. Despite this, Greta gave birth to their first child, a son, Norman, in 1897. The family then sailed for the Indies, and in 1898, Greta gave birth to their second, a daughter, Juana Luisa, nicknamed Nan, taken from the Indonesian word Nana, meaning little girl. Despite bringing children into it, the marriage was no better than when it started. Perhaps it was even worse. Greta stated in her journals that she could hear her husband in the next room with another woman even as she gave birth to their daughter. Now that is either a bold man or an insane man. Yeah, for sure. Greta endured constant physical and emotional abuse from her authoritarian husband, and she did this in order to take care of her children. They were her world. But every once in a while, she would leave them with their governess and she would explore the island. She became enamored with the native culture of Java. 
Her kids and her occasional expeditions kept her somewhat sane through all the craziness, but one day tragedy struck. She went into the nursery to wake three-year-old Norman and her infant daughter, and they were both incredibly ill. Her babies had been poisoned. But how? How could something so horrific happen in her own home? Well, there are conflicting stories about what happened. The first, which is more logical but doesn't have a lot of corroborating evidence, is that the family doctor accidentally caused mercury poisoning in the infants. You see, Rudolph, with his philandering ways, had given his wife a venereal disease, reportedly syphilis. Now, you're an expert on syphilis, right? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not in any way an expert on syphilis. <laughs> And I don't I, know why you would I, sully my good name by making that I, statement. I probably should have worded that a little differently. Maybe. I have yeah. some information here about <laughs> syphilis, but... Could you educate us on syphilis? I will. Now, syphilis hit Europe right at about the end of the 1400s, and in many ways, it terrified people more than the plague. Oh. The, well, the plague at least killed people quickly. With syphilis, you just had things fall off of your body. <laughs> and, I mean, you really, it, you had open sores. Uh, it's just an ugly yeah. disease. Right. The disease seemed to first appear among French troops in Naples, and this allowed the French and the Italians to blame each other for its origins. Of course. Now, here's a peculiar part here. When the wealthy had it, they would just make them stay at home. Okay. When the poor had it, they had to go to the hospitals which would admit them, they would kindly admit them, mm -hmm. but rather than fill out the forms that we have to fill out, they would give them a public whipping what? before they came in. Yeah, that's so lie. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, it gets better. After they treated them and sent them on their way, they got another whipping. <laughs> Here's one to grow on. Like, I, I don't just, know. I don't, wow. I mean, they considered the people immoral and figured they yeah. had it coming. So That is crazy. Ugh. Well, considering that there's no cure for syphilis and people had repeated attacks, you could end up with a lot of whippings. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was the treatment for syphilis. At that time, it was mercury, either eaten, inhaled, <laughs> or rubbed into the skin in an ointment. Jeez. Yeah, and by the 1800s, people were not ignorant of what mercury could do to a person. But no other treatment seemed to work. So patients were exposed over and over until their symptoms cleared up, which sometimes they would clear up and then come back, or they died. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny. It's just yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it was not really an evidence-based, you know, treatment. Right. And there's little evidence that mercury was effective at anything other than poisoning the patient. So, <laughs> so the more you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, the supposition is that the children suffered from congenital syphilis and that the doctor treated the children just like he would adults, giving them too much mercury. Um, the second story, which is a bit more outlandish, but actually does have a little bit more evidence, is that the family governess poisoned the children. The governess actually confessed to this act when she was dying from cholera. Apparently, a bit before the tragedy, Rudolph had discovered that a local soldier had been romancing the governess. 
The relationship appeared to be very normal. There was nothing happened that was awry, but Rudolph deemed the soldier's actions disrespectful. And in order to teach the young man a lesson, he hunted him down and he beat him within an inch of his life. So there was that. That could have been the insanity from the syphilis. It could have been. And he was a mean, unmanageable man. (laughs) Well, no, that was her father. But apparently she married someone similar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the children being poisoned was supposedly retaliation for him being so violent. So no matter what, the innocent victims of the whole thing were the children. And only one of them made it through. And that was little Nan. While she fought to live, three-year-old Norman, Gertha's firstborn, he lost his life. Little Nan lived. She survived. And despite rumors that she ended up growing up and becoming a spy like her mother, those claims actually have no merit. The young woman ended up going to school, the same one as her mother. She actually became a teacher. And after achieving her certification at age 21, she boarded a ship for Spain to begin a job. But she tragically died of a brain aneurysm before she reached her destination. So both of Greta's children ended up dying tragically. Just really sad. Well, after Norman's death, what was left of the family unraveled. Rudolph MacLeod had favored his son, and he went into an even darker place than he already dwelt. He started drinking so heavily that in 1900, he was forced to retire on medical grounds. In order to make the most of their military pension, the family moved to a small Indonesian village, but Greta hated it, and she begged him to go back to Holland. They returned to Greta's homeland in 1902, but the stress of everything finally caused what was left of the marriage to collapse. The couple disputed the cause of the separation. Rudolph ironically accused his wife of infidelity and referred to her as vile and horrible. Greta accused Rudolph of excessive physical violence, along with his constant stream of sexual conquests. She described some of his behavior in a letter. One Sunday afternoon, crazed and deranged, he came close to murdering me with a bread knife. I owe my life to a chair that fell over and gave me time to find the door and get help. Greta also said that doctors told her that her husband suffered from what they termed sadism. After the official divorce, Greta won custody of her daughter, but Rudolph was determined to make her pay for this. When Greta first arrived in Paris with her daughter, she tried her hand at a respectable living. She tried giving piano and language lessons. She worked as a lady's assistant, and she modeled at clothing stores. But she never felt she made enough of a living to support herself and her daughter. When Rudolph found out where she was, he took out an ad in the papers warning people about Greta and telling them not to do business with her. So that didn't help. That made an uphill climb even harder. However, the modeling did give way to becoming an artist model for painters such as Bassan, Guillenay, and Corman. Through this work, she also started making theater connections. She secured a part in a play, but the pay was very meager. During this time, she also started entertaining men for money. Her ex-husband hired two private detectives who reported on these events, and during a visit with Nan, Rudolph took his daughter from Paris, leaving Greta with no recourse to find her child. Once her ex-husband left with her daughter, 
Gretha felt defeated and she stopped fighting for her daughter. She basically stopped fighting for herself. She knew she was going to lose the battle. In one of her letters, she wrote, I am tired of fighting against life and I want one of two things, either Nani with me and to be a decent mother or I will live as it has been offered to me here. I know life ends with an accident, but I'm over that. Despite the fabulous lifestyle she was about to embark upon, there was a deep depression embedded into her words. She admitted her prostitution to her cousin in another letter. Don't think I'm bad at heart. I've only done it out of poverty. This was the time in her life that Greta began dancing. Her debut was a private dance at a salon, and it was a hit. She called herself Lady McLeod. A wealthy manufacturer who had traveled the Orient and founded a museum in Paris dedicated to the Far East recognized the potential in her dance, and he invited her to dance for him at his business. He knew the economic benefits of the Parisian fascination with all things exotic, and he thought both of them could benefit from it. Now, there was kind of an overall obsession with Far East culture at this time, wasn't there? Well, there had been a Far East obsession for a long time in Europe, and it kind of started with Marco Polo around 1300. And he his descriptions of the people there and their dress and the buildings, plants and everything seemed so bizarre that his memoir came to be known as The Million Lies. So Europe has always been fascinated with the mysticism, philosophies and products of the Far East. But around 1900, this grew really intense with the advent of world fairs and the ability of European merchants to make fake knockoff versions of things that would come from China. Right. People didn't know any different. So so it's kind of the opposite today. Over in China, they're making knockoff Apple phones or whatever. Right. Of our products. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, the gentleman that Greta had danced at his emporium also suggested that she go by a more foreign stage name, and it was then that Greta chose the name Matahari, which was Malay for Eye of the Day. Some translations say Eye of the Morning. She eventually became the emporium owner's mistress, and through him she met Gabriel Astrek, the most influential booking agent in Paris at the time. Her first major appearance was at the Paris Olympia in 1905, for which she received the American equivalency of today $30,000. The critics loved her. One write-up about her said, Matahari personifies all the poetry of India, its mysticism, its voluptuousness, its languor, its hypnotizing charm to see Matahari in a rhythm of wild voluptuous grace. Apparently this, this person liked the word voluptuous is an unforgettable spectacle. Well, the funny thing about this is that Matahari knew the whole time that she was creating a facade and that really what she was doing was giving an artistic reason to make it okay to view nude dancing, which was simply not acceptable at the time. But even the nudity wasn't real. Matahari usually wore a flesh-colored body stocking to create the illusion of nudity. Even she herself admitted in a letter, I can't dance well at all. The people came to see me because I was the first who dared to appear naked before the public. Matahari would always begin her dancing with some explanation of Buddhist or Hindu beliefs that she'd read during her time in Sumatra, and she would craft a poetic dance around that. 
She would even refer to the dance as religiously symbolic. The audiences ate it up. Once, someone from the balcony called her out, saying that there was nothing like what she was doing in the Far East. But those claims were ignored, and the naysayer was removed. <laughs> I'm calling shenanigans. I, right. I lived in China for years. I've not seen anything like that. And then right. they just drag him out and throw him in the street. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, in an interview, Matahari spoke the frank observation that, under the pretense of finding my dancing highly artistic and full of character, they just went to see the nudity. She was pretty self-aware, actually. <laughs> After establishing her Parisian success, she began to tour Europe, including an appearance in Monte Carlo, where she was rumored to have a liaison with, with composer Puccini. She supposedly took lovers from many countries, including both Germany and Paris, and this proved later to be a problem. The thing is that there are many rumors that circulate about Matahari, and it's difficult to discern what's true and what's not, and this is because she herself started many of the rumors. She was excellent at self-promotion, and she knew any attention could result in income. We do know that she became the on-again, off-again mistress of German officer Alfred Kiepert. This was also a detriment to her later in life. As a Dutch citizen, she traveled freely between France and Germany. But then something happened that changed it all, the onset of the war. Matahari didn't fully realize what was happening around her. She was more focused on the fact that her career was decreasing as her age was increasing. Then. In 1915, she was invited into the world of espionage, a world she didn't understand. She only saw it as a job opportunity at a time when opportunities were dwindling. Now, there's a bit of confusion about exactly what transpired, but it seems she was originally approached by the Germans in Holland. They saw her as a prime asset due to her popularity and her contacts. In fact, they thought her valuable enough to pay her the modern equivalency of $61,000. She took the job and the money, but she didn't really do much spying. When she traveled back to Paris, she spent her time winding up business affairs and tying up the loose strings of her life. And this was because she started to feel very unwelcome in Paris. The vibe she was getting from people that used to adore her probably had a lot to do with the economic strain people were under in France during the war. She just didn't seem to grasp that ordinary people resented her ostentatious lifestyle while French families were doing without basics, coal, clothing, food. Yeah. And they were sending their husbands, brothers, and sons to be killed in a war while she was there living in relative comfort. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Well, Matahari didn't really offer much to the Germans. She only gave them rumors that were already commonly known. And she didn't really do this out of strategy, more just complacency. She just really didn't care that much about it. At one point, she figured she should do something more official since she got paid. And she finally sent a letter to her German contact, giving a little info regarding troop movement that she gained from an evening with a French officer. The letter gave the Germans a bit more confidence and hope in what Matahari could provide. And they sent her for a week of espionage training. Apparently, you can learn everything you need to in order to be a spy in one week. They outfitted her with three bottles of invisible ink and the codename H21. Matahari claimed later that when she left training, 
she purposely dumped all the ink overboard while on a boat bound for Spain. As she continued her work as a courtesan, she experienced something new that softened her view on everything, and it also made her quite vulnerable. She fell madly in love. The object of Matahari's affection was a Russian officer named Vadim Maslov, a man over 10 years her junior. The jaded performer found herself so crazy about this man that she actually wanted to marry again. Her newfound love completely ended whatever weak attempts at espionage she'd made. Unfortunately, some of the actions that Matahari had already taken awakened British and French counter-espionage agents, and she was already under close watch. When she arrived back in Paris, she lived at the Grand Hotel, which was one of the few places that wasn't really affected by the ravages of war. She was kind of used to the attention that she garnered from men, so it took her quite a while to realize that she was under surveillance. George Ledoux, head of the newly formed French counter-espionage unit, sent agents to shadow her as she went to restaurants, shops, and clubs. The agents used to steam open her mail, listen in on conversations, and logged all of her interactions. Despite this, there was never any actual evidence found of Matahari passing important information to the Germans. Okay, well, that year, also a lot of the, the tension increased between France and Germany, right? Well, yeah, they were at war. So that, <laughs> well, I, that tended to make okay, them tense other than that. toward each other. <laughs> but yeah, in 1916, the war was going very badly for France. Two of the longest and bloodiest battles of the war, Verdun and Somme, pitted the French against the Germans for months at a time. The mud, bad sanitation, disease, and newly introduced use of fascine gas by the Germans led to the death or injury of hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Eventually, French troops became so demoralized that some refused to fight. It was actually the Battle of Somme that um, Tolkien, that inspired a lot of Tolkien's writings. Did you know that? I did not know that. No. Yes, that is what inspired the Lord of the Rings series. So, yeah. Well, actually, this was the first war in which chemical weapons and primarily gas were used. And interestingly, it was France that was the first to use gas. Okay. They deployed tear gas in August of 1914. And it wasn't really that effective. I mean, it, it burned people's eyes really badly and made it hard to breathe. But the symptoms went away or the effects mm -hmm. went away after about 30 minutes. Well, then the Germans started using chlorine which we hear today is still being used in Syria, right? Mm -hmm. But that, you could use a wet rag and put it over your face and it kind of diminished the effects of it. Mm -hmm. So Germany stepped it up with fascine, and this was a highly toxic gas. And it disrupted your lungs' abilities to function. It led to a buildup of fluid in the lungs and eventually you suffocate it. The really wow. scary part of this gas was that it had a very, very light scent. So if you could smell it, you were in an area where the concentration was already enough to kill you. Oh, wow. Yeah, so if you smelled it, you were basically done. Yeah. The drawback on that was that it took 48 hours to take effect. So they eventually switched, moved to mustard gas. And re strangely, the mortality rate from mustard gas was only about 2 to 3%. But it caused chemical burns, 
respiratory problems and blindness, and these led to long hospitalizations. And in a war, remember, a long hospitalization is much more effective than killing a soldier. I mean, just consider it takes one person a few hours to dig a grave, but it takes a lot of resources to care for a severely wounded soldier. Although chemical warfare caused less than 1% of the total deaths in the war, the fear of them was formidable and it gave Germans a huge psychological advantage. That's actually really interesting because the soldier that Matahari was waiting to marry, he suffered a serious eye injury due to fascine gas. By the time she'd heard about his injury, she found that he was in grave danger of losing his eye. So it's very relevant to that. When Matahari tried to get a safe conduct pass to see her beloved fiance, she had to see Captain Ledoux first. Now, this man's career was built on the assumption that France was being overcome with spies. Right. And as you said, he was the head of the French counterintelligence during World War I. And he was her primary contact. But she didn't know that he was basically setting a trap for her. His reason was because French morale was so bad in 1916, from what we just talked about, and he felt that they needed a high-profile victory of some sort. So he basically set her up. Right. And many people think that much of the evidence used against her was fabricated by Ledoux. And he himself was arrested as a double agent, but eventually released. But there is some evidence and speculation that he may have been, in fact, a double agent. And that he was using Matahari as a scapegoat and diversion to hide his own activities. Yeah. Well, after much back and forth, Ledoux agreed to give the dancer her pass if she would agree to be a spy for France. And with her high profile, that didn't really make sense. She accepted his offer, but with the caveat that if she gave him valuable intelligence, that he would pay off her debts and set her up with enough money to start a new life with her future husband. She basically just wanted to start over. She went to Spain. She enticed a German intelligence officer, and she encouraged him to tell her all about German troop movements in North Africa. When she excitedly passed on the information to Ledoux, she thought she would earn a million francs in the process. There's very conflicting reports on whether she was actually paid the money and even whether Ledoux even bothered to give her audience when she came to him. Either way, she was totally unaware of the trap that she fell into. Her meetings with the Germans were used against her in order to say that she was giving French secrets to the Germans. On February 10, 1917, a warrant for her arrest was signed by the French war minister. Three days later, Matahari was arrested after breakfast. Newspapers ran sensational headlines that Matahari was found and arrested in the nude. But like so many things in Matahari's life, this also was untrue. She was actually in her long, lace-trimmed dressing gown. The woman who was once the toast of Paris was thrown into a filthy prison and questioned by prosecutor Pierre Bachardon. Now this guy, like Ledoux, he had personal motivations, yes? Yes, he did. For one, he was a very well-known woman hater. Hmm. He was nicknamed the Grand Inquisitor, and during that time he was really going after spies. Mm -hmm. And 
he was a hard man and he was not known to show mercy to any suspected criminals, even if they might be innocent. Mm -hmm. But he was especially disapproving of immoral women. His diary reveals his immense hatred for man-eaters and sexually promiscuous women like Matahari. Actually, this man-eater, Matahari, wrote in her journals that she actively disliked sex. She wrote, My own husband has given me a distaste for matters sexual, such as I cannot forget. So ironic, you know, it's just, it's really sad. Well, unfortunately, Matahari did not help herself because she didn't disclose her activities with the Germans right away. Perhaps she was mistakenly overconfident due to her contacts, and perhaps she was afraid. But either way, her deception, combined with the prosecutor's ire against her, as well as the morality propaganda war that was happening at that time, it ultimately resulted in a sentence of execution. In the pre-dawn hours of October 15th, Matahari was awakened in her cell by two nuns that had been helping to care for her. She was told, it's time. She asked to write two letters, which she did feverishly. It has been surmised that one letter was to her fiancé and the other to her daughter. She dressed herself with immaculate care, donning a luxury suit, including black kid gloves and stockings. She tied a fancy black hat over her thick braids. She finally spoke the simple words, I am ready. She was transported by car to a field at the army barracks. Twelve young soldiers were drawn up in a firing squad formation. A priest spoke over her. She smiled ruefully in gratitude. A French officer tried to hand over a white handkerchief, which she refused. Greta Zell, known as the exotic Matahari, was not bound or blindfolded. She gazed intently at her executioners. The command was spoken. Twelve shots rang out as one. At the report, the middle-aged woman fell. She did not throw up her hands or plunge forward or back in dramatic repose. She simply collapsed on her knees briefly and then gently fell backwards, her face without expression as it faced the open sky. And when no one claimed Matahari's corpse, it was donated to the Museum of Anatomy in Paris. Her body was dissected and her head was removed and preserved in wax. Matahari's head became part of the museum's display of infamous criminals. When the French Minister of Education threatened to close the museum in 2000, the director decided to give the minister an inventory of the museum's collections. However, when he reviewed the list, he found that Matahari's head was missing. That's so weird. Yeah, but officials at the museum don't know when the head was taken or by whom. It's one of those mysteries that have not been solved yet. Right. It's very, very strange. I think a lot of famous people's body parts have been stolen. It's really weird. Well, the myth of Matahari paints her as a vamp and a mastermind spy. The epitome of what every good girl is never supposed to be. But we contend that Matahari was actually a victim a victim of a parent who taught her not to be content with the simple joys of life, a victim of a cruel and abusive man. 
a victim of society that idolized her and championed the things in herself that she actually loathed. A victim of a career builder that needed a scapegoat. A victim of wartime propaganda that needed to build up the image of an enemy and found an easy target in the woman who lived outside social norms. Gretha Zell was a spoiled daughter, a betrayed child, a mourning teenager, an abused wife, a grieving mother, a master self-promoter, a dancer, a prostitute, a symbol, a hopeful fiancé, a patsy, a victim. And despite the myths that surround her, we don't even know for sure if she was a spy. If you like the show and would like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. You can become a Patreon supporter. You can find us at Patreon under Spy Stories. You can tell your friends about our show. You can share our episodes. You can leave us positive reviews on iTunes. We have a Facebook group, Spy Stories Podcast. And please stay tuned at the end of the episode for the podcast that we recommend this week. The life of Matahari reminds us that it is possible to reinvent yourself after life steals your identity. You can start over. You can shine like the day. But it is important to be self-aware to know your limitations, to be cautious, to not lose the center of who you are. Matahari faced all of these challenges, but she kept trying to start over. Like Harriet the Spy says, life is a struggle, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. This week's podcast recommendation is Deadball. On Spy Stories, we say that some lives are bestsellers. Deadball tells the story of baseball's bestsellers. The triumphs, tragedies, and the legends who live them. You can find Deadball on all podcast platforms. It's not just for baseball fans. It's for fans of the human story. Deadball. Give it a listen.